welcome to Architecture Insights, the podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm your host, Di Snape. In this episode, you'll hear an interview that I did late last year with Dr. Hazel Easthope and Dr. Sandra Loschka. Dr. Hazel Easthope is an Associate Professor and UNSW Scientia Fellow at the City Futures Research Institute. Um, She has a varied background with qualifications in sociology and human geography uh, and she researches in the areas of urban studies and housing. She also takes a very broad um, approach to her research with interest in um, the areas of property title and ownership structures estate governments and management, urban renewal and housing redevelopment, building retrofits and upgrades, and resident relationships. So um, you'll hear quite a bit about that in today's interview. Similarly, Dr. Sandra Loschka is an Associate Professor and Director of Architecture, Design and Technology at the University of Sydney, and her research is... has investigated links between aesthetics, design and technology, specifically in museum and exhibition architecture. Sandra and Hazel have been developing some research together over a period of time, some of which um, the board has been and will continue to be supporting. Um, They focus on how how we live today, particularly in apartments, and particularly how we do that sustainably. The research remit of the board really is around modelling an evidence-based approach to the board's role in advising government. Um, And you can hear other episodes of Architecture Insights um, wherein you'll hear Byron Kinnaird expanding on the theme of the board's research remit. Um, But I think especially when it comes to the contribution of architecture and the built environment to the state's economy, Research like Hazel and Sandra's is really a part of demonstrating ways to make the most of our investment in the long-term shape and the character of our state. So now let's listen to uh, Dr. Hazel Easthope and Dr. Sandra Loschka. Welcome, Sandra. Welcome, Hazel. Thank you very much for coming in so early. Thanks for having us. So today we're going to talk about um, some research. So my first question for you both is about transforming housing and in particular transforming apartment living. What is it that's happening in the apartment market at the moment that's prompting the research and your interest in transforming it? Hazel, maybe you'd like to take this one. Sure. So... People often talk about apartment living as though it's a new thing, but it's not. We've had it for a long time. And we're in a situation now where we've got quite a lot of older blocks, especially in cities like Sydney. And there's been a lot of discussion about what to do with them, what to do with older blocks when they get run down, whether they can be densified, whether they can be improved. And so far, the policy response has largely been focused on knocking them down and putting new buildings in their place. And we think that there's better ways to do it that's not the most economically, environmentally or socially sustainable way to redevelop older blocks. So our project is looking at how we can do that better, what the alternatives might be. So 
Um, what have you discovered at this stage about those older blocks? What is the, what's the research telling you at the moment? I know you're kind of interested in gathering data on this sort of topic. What's, what does the data say just now? Well, we know that there's, um, there's a lot of them. So across the whole of Greater Sydney, there's just over 500,000 strata titled property, properties. So most apartment blocks are strata titled. Um, and about a third of them were built prior to 1980. So if we extrapolate that across the whole country, that means there's about a million old apartments across the whole country. When you say old, do you mean prior to 1980? Prior to 1980, so registered prior to 1980. Some of those apartments are younger than me. That's not old. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're apartments that um, are at a point at which um, if they haven't had much renovation or rejuvenation, um, the owners are going to be looking to do that. They're going to be looking to improve them or they might be looking to sell them collectively to a developer for redevelopment or collectively redevelop them themselves. So what we want to do is we want to provide an alternative to that redevelopment, to that knock down and rebuild type redevelopment and give people the option of actually redeveloping within the existing building structure. Um, and often those older blocks are actually much better quality in terms of their underlying building structure than the things that are being built today. So it's a, it's a pretty good alternative. Uh, but there's challenges to doing that at the moment and that's why we want to do this research. What are the key challenges, Sandra? I think the key challenges are um, to actually look at these buildings with fresh eyes and actually see them as a resource rather than something that we would like to get rid of on the long term. Um, the key challenge is that these buildings um, were actually built for inhabitants that um, are no longer the target group. So um, looking at demographic change, we now look at aging populations. Um, we also have a very large level of migration. So we are actually looking at a much more um, diverse um, demographic in terms of uh, residents. And many of these apartments were based on much more sort of universal designs and are actually no longer suitable for the forms of living that we see there today. Like many families um, from different cultural backgrounds, for example, um, are considerably larger than the average Australian family. And these apartments don't really cater for this. But um, it also leads to um, conflicts when we have aging populations, um, people from different cultural backgrounds, younger families, bigger families. Um, and these things can actually, um, they need to be resolved and need to be addressed. So we are really interested in not just looking at reinstating or refurbishing the existing buildings, but looking at um, fresh ways of how we can actually fundamentally transform these buildings um, through redesign to provide better living spaces. So that's probably one of the bigger challenges. What would you say... Um, What's the key reason for you for retaining old fabric? If it requires so much fundamental um, alteration to accommodate different ways of living, different demographics, different family sizes, um, different household sizes, what you know? Given that we're in such a busy development market at the moment, and um, housing approvals are on the increase, why not provide those requirements through new housing developments? because it's just not necessarily always economically or environmentally and even socially sustainable. I think most redevelopment will um, lead to an increase in prices of the apartments. It also means that you have to displace the residents um, during the building works. 
So I think socially it's not um, a very sustainable um, process. But also, as Hazel mentioned earlier, much of the building fabric is actually perfectly intact and there's no real need to um, um, to demolish these buildings. You know, you, one of your questions was, um, who are the future consumers? And I think one of the points to think about is that um, buildings aren't necessarily something to be consumed. I mean, they're different to products. Um, they're much more important. They're things that um, shape our lives and um, that form the backdrop to our lives. So I think they're... It's very popular to compare them to cars or they might be made in similar ways, but they're actually not um, dispendable as easily. They're much, much more important. So I think um, they're a fantastic resource and it's much more sustainable to actually look at ways of how we can um, transform them rather than get rid of them. In terms of, um, if I can add to that, um, in terms of environmental sustainability, there's a lot of embedded carbon in buildings. Um, so if you can you know, use what's already there, then you, you're making savings there. And in terms of economic sustainability, my colleagues um, and I have done some modelling of where it would actually be feasible to knock down and rebuild apartment blocks. And one of the things we found is that there are areas of Sydney where it's just not economically feasible. There isn't, you, it's, it just doesn't stack up to knock down existing blocks and build them with new ones in areas in the out, outer western suburbs because you can't, you can't do it and still get a developer profit. So these types of um, uh, owner-led redevelopment that can be much less costly than a rebuild actually will allow renewal of those buildings where it's not economically feasible to do it through knockdown rebuild. So that's another reason to, there's a, almost an equity reason um, to, to enable this kind of thing. And, and one of the, the other huge barriers to doing this at the moment is that um, architects don't have the guidance about how to do it. How do you actually go about redesigning something with multiple um, users in an efficient way? And that's where, where Sandra's skills come in. That was going to be my next question. What is the role of the architect? Because obviously what you're talking about is um, key to it is the sort of the collective of owners who are interested in doing this. This is not um, necessarily developer-led change. So what is the role of the architect in a project like this? I think it will be much more the role of a, a mediator and a facilitator. And I think one of the issues is why we also love to talk about participatory design. Um, there's very little information how you actually really go about this. Um, there are quite a number of pioneering projects in Europe that actually have redeveloped larger schemes and have done it apparently in participation with the residents. But how you really go about it and what the design process is and how you actually make decisions collectively and who actually takes responsibility for these decisions, these are all really important questions that have never been addressed in a strategic um, a manner. Um, it's all more um, currently based on ad hoc approaches to how to how to go about participatory design. So we're really interested in developing a proper framework that actually helps both architects and residents and other stakeholders in that process. And even those European examples, which are incredibly impressive in terms of what they've managed to do through participatory design, have taken a really long time because there weren't frameworks and structures in place to actually 
they had to work it out as they went along, right? So what we're trying to do is to provide frameworks and structures that will shorten that time period for the participatory redesign process so that it won't have to be, you won't have to be redesigning the wheel every time you want to do a participatory redesign of an apartment block. I think that's a really interesting point, particularly in the Australian context and, you know, the cultural imperatives or the cultural habits that we have here. We just had the Sydney Architecture Festival last week and we heard from um, Christian Ring about the projects of the Baugruppe in Berlin, which sounds like it sort of has resonance with these ideas, but it comes from a completely different and particularly German culture. Um, Whereas in Australia, I think it needs to have a different trigger. What would you say, Sandra, about um, the way that participatory models need in order to operate successfully in an Australian context? Mm -hmm. I think the interesting thing about the German context is that it's actually supported by the government. So they actually facilitate that process by... um, making land available for these particular kinds of projects. So I think a certain sort of, um, if I may call it, top-down approach is actually really helpful to level the ground. Um, But I also think there needs to be a bigger perspective. Um, Rather than just looking at individual projects, I think there needs to be some kind of level of strategy on um, how how to go about it. And also the question of risk is really important because whilst we all love to think about making decisions collectively, uh, there also needs to be an apportioning of responsibility and um, some kind of clear thought of who is probably best suited to take certain risks in terms of design decisions. And these are very important questions to make this project um, projects viable, but also to um, facilitate financing of these projects to turn them into lower risk developments. And what is your research at the moment telling you about the distribution of that risk and you know the kind of agencies or um, institutions who are prepared to carry that risk? Well, the difference between Australia and Germany is that in Germany the banks will lend um, to Baugruppen and in Australia they haven't been. Um, and, you know, that's that's pretty difficult. Um, in Australia, though, we do have um, other players who are coming into that area. So um, you probably have talked about Nightingale Housing with some of your other guests, and that's a different funding model through a not-for-profit funding um, approach. Um, and they've been so incredibly successful that it's hard for them to actually keep up with the demand. So that they've demonstrated that there is a demand out there for this kind of support um, and funding for these... Um, consumer-led or resident-led types of developments, or in our case, redevelopments. And hopefully that will lead to the, to the banks starting to look at this as a, as a feasible option. Mm-hmm. But that might, that might require some, um, some lobbying and some um, prodding from both private sector and from government to the banks to try and encourage that. It does seem to be that we need to prove the model before it gains um, broad support at the moment. But these projects that we've just been talking about, Nightingale, Baugruppe, largely they're new builds um, and in quite a few instances architect-driven. Back to the idea of the redevelopment of existing buildings, what's the key element there, do you think? I'm not going to talk about the key element, but one of the benefits of the redevelopment of existing buildings in terms of financing 
um, and in terms of them not being developer-led, is that there are already financing companies out there who will lend to owners' corporations to do upgrades to their buildings. So the financing options already exist, which is great, actually. It means that that's one barrier that that can be overcome already um, in redevelopment. Right, so there's a, there's a financing option that exists which is specifically around redeveloping existing buildings? There are finance companies that offer that specialise in offering loans to owners' corporations. So they offer loans to the collective of owners who own buildings in order to do whatever they need to do. So they might offer loans for um, repairs if there's not enough money in the accounts or they also offer loans for significant upgrades to buildings. So we do have those mechanisms in place already and I would imagine that um, should should we be able to encourage more of this type of um, participatory redesign um, and more efficient and effective participatory redesign, we're going to see a lot more of those companies coming on board and also the big banks providing those kinds of services. Is that particular to company or strata title buildings or does it apply either way? So I don't know if you want me to talk about particular companies... But oh, no, I just meant the titling arrangement for buildings that exist. Are those loans more those particularly loans are, available to company title? or No, they're particularly available strata. to strata title. Okay. Yeah. Um, only exclusively strata title? or uh, So the company, there are, there are some of the larger banks offer strata title loans. So they offer loans to all sorts of different people. And there are also companies that only offer strata title loans. I was just thinking about um, the role of the architect in that process and that um, architects often shun these projects because they are notoriously difficult. It means that they actually have to deal with large groups and um, the decision-making processes aren't always easy. There's also the issue of um, information asymmetry, meaning that many of the residents actually don't necessarily fully understand the process. Um, they probably feel forced to make decisions that aren't based on um, information that or well-founded information. So um, I understand that many of these projects actually stall very early on because of these issues. And I th- actually think to um, to reconsider the role of architects in this process is a very important point, not only to make them more feasible and um, successful, but um, it also goes back to the question of um, training architects um, to work in these kinds of um, projects and environments. Um, the Royal Institute of British Architects has done a very interesting client study. They do them regularly, and one of the issues that always surface is the fact that um, Architects might well deliver very good results, but they um, notoriously fall down when it comes to the process. And this is one of the issues that clients are most unhappy with is that um, the, the pain and the, um, uh, the sort of, um, how can I possibly put it, not just the pain, but um, the misunderstandings that occur during the design process, which they feel um, they're not really um, an integral part of. Um, and it hasn't been successfully addressed. So there's also a question of training or post-training architects to better deal with these situations. Because while some of these projects have successful outcomes, um, others might never get there because of that issue with the design process and how to actually make clients, and especially multiple clients, um, an important part of that. Is there evidence to suggest that we're in a similar scenario in Australia? 
Um, well, <laughs> this particular survey was a client survey from the British Institute, but um, I think the training is um, very similar, and I, I could imagine that some of these results would be easily translatable and equally apply here. Gosh, that's um, something for everybody to think about. <laughs> so back to the um, idea of the participation of residents and the way that clients should be involved in this um, process of refurbishment. What, in your view, from the research so far, needs to happen um, to give residents more tools to determine you know, the future of their, let's call them apartment communities, um, in, in this kind of collective arrangement? I think they need to be um, provided with better sets of information that are easily accessible to them. Um, we sometimes forget that not everyone can read architectural plans um, and visualizations aren't always a, a good way of understanding on what it actually would mean for individual residents if these schemes were put into place. So I think communication and better ways of working on the project um, is a very important thing. But at the same time, it's also maybe educating residents that um, architects actually can provide really valuable services to them. It's not about fixing existing problems, but it's about fundamentally rethinking um, the ways they live. And um, I think a kind of appreciation of that is really important. And I think for that, um, our framework that we plan to put in um, place it really tries to, to make this very clear that um, residents should have a voice in it, but they should not necessarily be the people who make design decisions. I think that's a very important um, point to consider that um, design decisions should probably be made by those who are most qualified to make them. And um, at the same time, architects should also, of course, listen to residents. So I think there's a kind of, um, there needs to be an increase of mutual understanding in the in the process and a, acknowledging each other's value. In terms of the framework that you are developing, Hazel, could you, what are the barriers at the moment that we kind of need to collectively address then perhaps it's not, it's not just the purview of architects to deal with that or just the clients, there's a whole lot of players involved in this scenario, but what are the, what are the current barriers to m making something like this happen? Well, most of our apartment buildings in Australia are strata titled, which means that they're collectively owned. So owners each own an individual unit and then they all form part of an owner's corporation that owns the building and the grounds. Um, and what that means is that all decisions that are made about the building and the grounds need to be made collectively by all of the owners. And as you can imagine, any time you ask a collection of anyone to make a decision together, occasionally they'll all agree and most of the time they won't. So a lot of any decision that's made about anything that's ever going to happen to a building, an apartment building that's collectively owned, is going to be contentious and there's going to be um, a need to listen to what everybody wants and to try and come up with solutions that best meet the priorities of the most people. Um, so I guess it's just a fundamental um, human condition. <laughs> Is this about improving negotiation skills? It's about... Um, I think it's about getting the priorities right. So rather than one person, be that an architect or an owner, coming in and saying, I have a vision for this building, who agrees with me? It's about coming in and saying, do you agree that we need to do something to improve this building? And get that agreement first. And then 
what are your priorities? What is most important to you about living here? What are the things that matter most to you? Getting those priorities straight and agreeing on them and then asking the design experts to start coming up with ideas to actually address those priorities. Does that make sense? So it's about, it's really about how you go about making those decisions um, so that they are more collaborative and participatory. And then, so by participatory design, we don't mean that an architect comes with two options and then asks all of the owners to vote on which one they like the best. That is not participatory design. So um, my next, so what does the str your framework, and you may not be quite up to this yet because I know it's fairly early days with the research, but what do you think that the framework will offer as a kind of process to help facilitate this um, different and more open discussion or participation? I think it will offer guidance mainly in terms of decision-making processes um, and provides, for example, scenarios that um, both architects, clients and um, residents can be guided by. But I think it will also contain a wealth of case studies that actually provide positive and interesting examples for inspiration so that there's something more concrete that can actually um, provide guidance as well. So we're not really... Um, we're not really looking for guidance in terms of um, giving um, quantitative measurements of how big, how large, or um, what kind of materials should be used, but we're really looking more at, uh, at the process, literally how to go um, about it. So it's going to be a how-to-do um, guide rather than uh, something, not design guidelines in terms of um, qualitative, uh, quantitative measurements. So it's nothing like that. So essentially what it will be is it'll be um, a document it doesn't exist yet, but it will be a document which will be online and accessible, which architects, strata managers and owners on their committees can go to to get some advice about what to do if they're interested in redeveloping their buildings. You know, step-by-step -step guides about, you'd start by thinking about this um, and also going through um, the benefit of having Sandra and I work together, I think, is that we can go through the details of the decision-making process in strata buildings, which is what a lot of my research is focused on. So, you know, you make this decision, how do you formalise this decision? What are the motions that you need to put on the agenda? How are you going to fund it? And all of that practical information and also all of the practical information for the, for the architects. Yeah, and for case studies. I think one of the other issues that we have is sometimes that refurbishments aren't seen as um, very attractive. And um, um, some of my colleagues have gone as far as saying that there might not be architecture at all. So some of the really good examples we've seen in France where buildings have been adapted and fundamentally transformed without major architectural stunning features, the criticism has often been um, this isn't really architecture. So doing as little as possible because that's the most sensible thing to do hasn't always been well received. So I think um, the guides and the case studies hopefully will also help to change um, attitude towards um, redesign, uh, which would be a, a good thing in the architecture community too. And we'll also be trying to provide examples of things that can be done that are um, less disruptive and that are cost effective. So one of the examples Sandra told me about, which I thought was just brilliant, is this building um, where the building had no balconies um, and winter gardens were uh, developed off-site, prefabricated, and they were installed on the building in one day. So the residents left, they went to work, 
And when they came back, they had winter gardens on their buildings. I mean, that's just amazing. And letting people know that that technology exists and that that's a possibility for their buildings is really valuable. And so that gave them extra floor area, it gave them balcony space, it gave them a completely different way of living in that building. That's the French project, isn't it? Yeah, that's the Locaton Vasa project in Paris. I think it also offers, apart from improving living conditions, it also is a way of, maybe not on a huge scale, but in a at a certain scale to actually improve um, density. And um, it has never been talked about that actually sort of looking at existing housing stock is also a means of densifying the mm. city um, with a less disruptive way and something that mm. can be done without planning 20 years ahead, but something that can be done like now. And we're also seeing that happening already in Sydney on an ad hoc basis. So um, I'm aware of buildings which have had um, very large costs for, for maintenance or fire service upgrades and have actually funded doing that work by putting additional units on the roof of the building and selling them. So, you know, this stuff is happening, but it's happening without much guidance and support. So what we're trying to do is to enable it to happen more often and more easily and more affordably. Mm. And we started this conversation talking about um, city making, redesigning the city and that small project that's on your mind. Um, you've talked about the economic and social and environmental impacts or potential benefits of this approach. I wonder, um, do you also have a view on what it means to the city, the form of the city in retaining this kind of built fabric? I think it will probably um, be more diverse and it will also probably ensure um, a more diverse population in the suburbs because I think as we mentioned earlier new developments often drive out existing residents and populations and it um, almost by necessity carries with the gentrification to a certain degree so I think it will be socially much more sustainable to allow the city to grow um, at a more moderate um, and sustainable pace as well so it's not about a disruptive change but it's about gradual change and natural occurring change because participatory redesign is actually asking people who aren't developers or the architects who work for developers to design the places where they live, I think you're going to see more diversity than what we're seeing in the new build apartment market. Um, and I think that that's great. I think I agree with you. So what's next then? What are the next steps? What's the short term plan for this um, piece of research and, and eventually the framework? And what's the greatest long-term opportunity that you really want to um, pursue? It's obviously a piece of research providing the, the guide, which in itself is a project. But I think we also have a longer vision for this project as something that doesn't just stop with the guide, but it's something that has constantly developed. And um, really we are dreaming of a, a platform where it's um, something that actually becomes a forum for exchange of knowledge on these projects that allows architects and residents to exchange ideas, to um, seek advice on problems. So something that goes well beyond the, the life of the research project itself. And we're hoping that we're going to be able to roll out a larger program of research on density without demolition. So. Um, all of the things that we've been talking about today, but also um, changes to planning regulations to allow um, other forms of densification other than 
knocking down existing properties and building new ones in their place. That's really exciting. Just a, a call out if anyone is interested in our research project and would like to talk to us about it or yep. get involved, let us know. Okay, how should they do that? Should they contact the bo- contact you through they the can, board? Oh, they can email us if you want to put our email addresses okay, on. Okay, everyone, Google Sandra and <laughs> Hazel. I know that their email addresses are on their websites. They are. Um, we hope that the project will start um, likely in in the earlier part of mid next year. Um, please, if you are interested in this sort of research, get in touch with Sandra and Hazel. Thank you very much. Sandra and Hazel for coming up this morning and talking to me here in the podcast booth. Much appreciated and um, I look forward to seeing what happens with the research. Thanks very much. Thank you for having us. That was Hazel East Hope and Sandra Loshka speaking to me here at the ARB. Thank you very much for listening to Architecture Insights. I'm your host, Di Snape. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Architecture Insights, you can download them from SoundCloud. You can um, follow us there. I think you can get us on iTunes. Um, And if you're interested in what we are interested in, we also tag a whole lot of other people's podcasts on our SoundCloud page. Um, So have a look around. You might be interested in some of that. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.